Good morning. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King. And if you're a guest or visitor, welcome. Uh, we're very glad that you're with us this morning and uh, that we can come and sit under God's Word. And if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to John 17. Um, John 17. So during the summer months, we were spending our time in the Psalms, and, um, and we're, we're done with the summer. <laughs> right, kids? You're back at school. I know. You, you wish summer... One of my kids, who uh, he will re- remain nameless, uh, he... <laughs> After the first day, asked when summer was coming back. So um, uh, I, I understand, Bubba, but um, but it uh, we are done with the summer, and so uh, we are done with the Psalms for now. But my hope is that every summer we'll return to the Psalms at least, uh, you know, maybe until we get through all 150, and maybe then we'll just restart again. So, um, but uh, but if if you were here with us even before the summer, then you know that. We were taking a break during the summer from our study in the book of Exodus, and we actually stopped right at the climax of the book. Like, the people are about to leave Egypt, and we left it with a cliffhanger. Like, the season ended, and we have to wait a whole nother season for season two. Well, we're going to wait a little bit longer. Uh, We are coming to Exodus, but I thought that would be nice since we just finished uh, looking at these different songs and prayers of the Old Testament to spend a little bit of time looking at a prayer from the New Testament. So we're going to spend three weeks before we re-enter into Exodus. We're going to spend three weeks looking at Jesus' high priestly prayer, which takes place in John 17. Uh, The the nice thing about the high priestly prayer is it breaks up very very succinctly, very nicely, into three different uh, paragraphs, three different sections. And so we're going to look at over the next three weeks. And this morning we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. This prayer that Jesus begins by praying about his own glory. Now, what's fascinating is, for context's sake, is that Jesus has just finished telling his disciples that he's about to leave. And he says to them at the end of John 16, You will have trial and tribulation, but do not fear, for I have overcome the world. You will have trial and tribulation. And then Jesus prays. He prays for himself. He prays for the work that he is about to do. He prays for his own glory, and then he prays for his disciples. So let's go to the Lord and see this prayer that Jesus offers, beginning beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. On April 25th, uh, 1997, I don't know if you remember what you were doing on April 25th, 1997, but I remember exactly what I was doing. It was one of the last games that I went to at Toronto Skydome in Toronto, Ontario. So for those of you who don't know me, I grew up 
not far from Toronto, and I would go every year to uh, Toronto to watch the Blue Jays play. Not because I was a Blue Jays fan. In fact, at this time, I was pulling for the Dodgers, but that's a whole nother story. Um, but but uh, I would go because I just love baseball, and I was particularly excited about this game, not because not just because I was about to go off to college and be very far from professional baseball, but, but because of who was in town. You see, the Mariners were coming to town. And I wasn't a Mariners fan, but, but with the Mariners coming to town, it meant that Junior was coming to town. Now, some of y'all have no idea who Junior is, but Ken Griffey Jr. in 1997 was the best baseball player in the universe. <laughs> Not just on Earth, but on every planet. He was the best baseball player. See, that year he hit over 50 home runs and had over 100 RBIs and batted over 300, and, and he won the MVP award that year, and I was going to get to see him play. I could not wait, and it was going to be even better because Roger Clemens was on the mound for the Blue Jays, so one of the best pitchers in the game was pitching against the best player in the game. It was going to be magnificent. And so there I was sitting behind first base on the lower level. I had the perfect view to watch that beautiful left-handed swing. Do you remember Griffey used to stand real tall in the box and kind of wagged his bat a little bit? He had that slight uppercut, and it seemed so effortlessly until the bat made contact with the ball, and it seemed to explode. And I got to watch it. It was awesome. I couldn't wait. So there we are. We're sitting I'm watching the game. It's the third inning, and Griffey comes up. This is his second at-bat already in the game. I forget what he did in the first at-bat, but he comes up, and there he is. He's in that beautiful stance, and Clemens kicks, and he pitches. He delivers, and into the bleachers. It was awesome. Home run. Right? I'm not pulling for the Jays. I'm not pulling for the Mariners. I just want to see Griffey do what Griffey does, and he did it. He hit a home run, so there I am clapping, right? Like the only person in the same clapping. So uh, he comes up a little bit later in the game, right? This is now his like fourth at bat. He had five in the game, actually. This is his fourth at bat. And he's staying there. Clemens is still pitching. The game's still on the line. Clemens kicks. He delivers and into the bleachers again. I mean, can it get any better? Two home runs, right? Two home runs. Griffey is owning the Blue Jays. This is awesome. And there I am standing, clapping. This is great. Wonderful. Well, he's got one more at bat. He comes up in the next thing. The game's out of reach now. Clemens is in the shower. The Jays have lost, but there he is. He's up, and there's someone else pitching. I think it was Tim Lynn. He kicks, he pitches, and Griffey, one more into the bleachers. I mean, it was three home runs. I have never been to a major league game where there has been three home runs by one player, and yet there he did it. I mean, it, it, it couldn't have been a better way to send me off to college. It's like he knew I was there. It was wonderful. It was magnificent. And there I was standing, clapping. But you know what was amazing was after that third home run, looking around the stadium of 40 or 50,000 people, I wasn't the only one standing and clapping. There were a few Mariners fans there. They were applauding. They were cheering. But, but actually, the entire stadium was on their feet, applauding, giving glory to this greatness. I mean, think about that. The, the hometown crowd just watched this one player decimate their team, and yet there they stood, and they cheered him. They honored him. They gave him glory, and, and they should have done that because what they just saw was something very unique. Something incredible, right? His athletic ability is from another planet, and we just witnessed it at its height. And so we stand, stood, and applauded and cheered. 
and gave glory to this incredible feat. You know, to give glory to something means to honor it, to praise it, to to be in wonder or awe. Those 40,000 people, they didn't need to be told to stand and applaud what they had seen. They had seen something that they had never seen before. They knew instinctively this was the right response. This is how they should respond to what they had just seen, to give glory to this amazing thing. Glory. That's what is at the heart of Jesus' prayer. In this passage, these first five verses, that's what Jesus asked for is glory. Five times in five verses, Jesus speaks of his own glory and the glory of the Father. He says, Father, glorify me and let me glorify you. He's speaking of his own glory. He wants to be praised, to be honored, to be revered. And why is he calling for his own glory? Why is he asking for that in this prayer? Because Jesus is about to do something that is completely unique. He's about to do something that is completely awe-inspiring, something that the world has never seen before. He's about to go to his death. He's about to go to his death. You see, that's what he's been preparing his disciples for. Remember I said in Chapters 14 through 16, Jesus was saying, I'm about to leave you. This is what theologians call the farewell discourse. He's getting them ready. I'm about to leave. Be prepared. I'm about to go. And after he prays this prayer, that's what happens. He's arrested and he's beaten. He's tried and convicted and he is killed. But the very thing he said would happen does. And it is because he is going to his death, this most unique, this most beautiful of things, that Jesus is to be glorified. That's the first thing I want us to see about this prayer, that in Jesus' death, there is glory. There is great glory in his death. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, maybe, maybe you're exploring Christianity, maybe someone drug you here. Maybe you're just starting to think about returning to the church. And so the idea of us glorying in someone's death, giving honor or praise to death, seems maybe morbidly strange to you. And yet that's exactly what Jesus said. Look at verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now the hour that Jesus is speaking of is the hour of his crucifixion. Remember the farewell discourse, he's preparing them to leave. He's preparing the disciples that he's going to be arrested. He will go to his death, that this hour is but moments away. He's about to go to his death. In fact, this language of hour, of time, it shows up repeatedly in the Gospel of John. If we were studying it, we would see that many times we hear that Jesus' hour or his time had not yet come. In chapter 7, for instance, his brothers want him to go up to the Feast of Booths. And Jesus won't go. He doesn't, he's not going to reveal himself yet. And he says that he won't go because my time has not yet fully come. And then later in chapter 7, the people are trying to arrest him. But we're told that no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. You see, the crucifixion, the hour of his death, could only occur at the exact moment that it had been determined in the eternal counsel of God, and not a moment sooner. 
Jesus could not be arrested. He could not be revealed to be the crucified Savior until that moment when Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had determined that it would happen. And it's about to. The hour is about to come when Jesus would glorify the Father and the Father would glorify Jesus. But how does this death glorify anyone? I mean, how is it that the cross shows the glory of God? Well, notice verse 2. Jesus has said, the hour has come, glorify me and I will glorify you. Verse 2 begins with since. Now that word uh, since, that Greek word, it literally means just as or in as much as. It's, it's a marker. The Greek word, it's a marker of cause and reason. So Jesus is giving the reason, the rationale for why he is to be glorified. And he says in verse 2, Since you have given him authority, the him being Jesus, authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Did you hear that? Why is the cross, Jesus' death, the place of glory? Because it is in his death that eternal life comes. Because it is in his death that the lost are found, that the guilty are forgiven, that the dead are made alive. Eternal life only comes through the death of Christ. There's a couple things that we need to extrapolate from this idea of eternal life. Some that are clear from the text and some that are implied. The, the first is that the fact that Jesus gives us life means that we don't have it. Right? That, that makes sense. If we don't have something, if someone gives us something, then that, the implication is we didn't have it in the first place. And so when Jesus gives us life, the implication is that we were already dead. And that's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us in Ephesians that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. It tells us in Romans chapter 3 that every single aspect of us, our thoughts and our desires, our hands and our tongues, every single thing about us is oriented away from God and towards sin. The, The Bible tells us that we are even born in our sins. That that is who we are apart from Christ and that that sin leads to death. That we are dead men walking. Physically alive but spiritually dead. And so we are in need of one who can give us eternal life. And that's exactly what Jesus gives us. He gives us the very thing that we are in need of, eternal life. But that's not the only implication of this eternal life. The the other is that eternal life only comes through Christ. Look at verse 3. Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And this is a clear claim of exclusivity. And so what Jesus is saying here is that, that that notion that all religious roads lead to God that all that matters is the sincerity of one's faith and then you will achieve eternal life, that those notions are falsehoods, that they're not true. What Jesus is indicating here is that that he is doing something that no one else can do. Not Joseph Smith, not Muhammad, not Buddha, not adherence to the sacrificial system, or your own ability to have moral superiority over your neighbor. 
that none of those things can grant you the life that you are desiring, that the adherence to them only leaves you in the grave. But yet Christ, see, we know the Father through Christ. And in knowing the Father, we have eternal life. That's what he said. Eternal life is to know the Father, and to know the Father is to know Christ. Jesus earlier in the gospel said, no one comes to the Father but through me. No one but through me. He is glorified because he does what no one else can do. That is why we glory in this gruesome death. And the crucifixion was gruesome. I mean, it was horrible. Think, think about what it is that Jesus went through on the cross. His body nailed to wood, hung on the cross, his side pierced by a spear and blood trickling from his forehead from where they had placed the crown of thorns. The weight of his body pressing in on itself, constricting the air to his lungs. It would have been a horrible way to die. And then add the fact that Jesus wasn't simply dying by giving up his breath, but he was in the crucifixion also taking our sin upon himself. The wrath of God poured out on him. It would have been a horrible way to die. He was the innocent, and yet he died a debtor's death. It was gruesome, and yet for those who know him, it is glorious. Because in Jesus going to his death, he raises us to new life. Our sins are nailed to the cross so that they are no more. And that we have forgiveness. It is glorious. The French theologian John Calvin once said, he said, If it be objected that never was there anything less glorious than the death of Christ, I reply that in that death we behold a magnificent triumph. For there we perceive that atonement having been made for sins, the world has been reconciled to God, the curse has been blotted out, and Satan has been vanquished. Jesus was able to do what no one else could, to give you eternal life. That is why we glory in his death. That's why that gruesome death is glorious for his people, because our sins are forgiven. Atonement has been made. So what do we do with that? What do we do with this? What do we do with this glory? Well, well, the first thing is it should cause us to humble ourselves. Maybe for the first time. Maybe you aren't a Christian here this morning. Maybe you've never heard the gospel before. And, and it should cause you to humble yourself before the Father. To say, I am in need of one to save. I'm in need of one who can atone for my sins. And so humble yourself. But if you're a Christian, you humble yourself as well. You see, our humility does not end at the point of salvation, but it continues on because we know that there is nothing that we have done to merit God's salvation. God didn't save you because you're so good looking. And he didn't save you because you're so smart or so witty or because people like you. No, he saved you because of his grace and of his mercy and of his love. There was nothing in us that would cause God to save us, and yet he did because of the grace of Christ. 
And so that should cause us to be the humblest people in the world. Christians, reformed Christians, should be the humblest people in all the world. Now, I know that the rest of Christianity doesn't look at us that way because we're pretty smart people, right? Y'all are pretty smart people. We have good theology and good doctrine, and we love those things, and we should. And yet we should do so, we should love them, and we should promote them with a spirit of humility because if anything, our doctrine tells us that there is no reason why Jesus would save me. And yet he did. It should be humble. But the other thing that this should elicit from us is the spirit of glory. That we should glorify the Savior who has saved us. That we should exalt in him. That we should praise him and worship him. Maybe for the first time today. But for all of our lives. That every part of our life, every part of our being should glorify him. Not just in the great things, but in the mundane in the day-to-day, right? Not just in the amazing ways in which we can proclaim the glory of God, but in every aspect of who we are. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, it was in our reflections. Question one, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 to his disciples, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Everything about us should be oriented towards giving glory to our God. Even the little things. It means that my words to my children and the words on my Twitter feed should give glory to God. It means that the ways in which we seek to open up our homes to our neighbors should be done so to the glory of God. It means that the way we go about our jobs and we use our possessions and our gifts and all the things that God has given us for the good of others, we do so for the glory of God. It means, like Paul said, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whether you rise or sleep, you give glory to God. That that's what our lives are to be about. Every part of us, every day, humbly glorifying the Father. See, we give glory to God because we have been recipients of the glory of Christ's death. He is glorified because of his death, but but also Jesus is glorified because of his triumph. It's the other thing I want us to see from this prayer. Look at verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is saying because of all that he has done, his perfect obedience, his death and his resurrection, because of these things, when he ascends into heaven, he re-enters into the glory of the Father, that he regains the glory that he gave up in his incarnation. So so we have to do some uh, theology here, some uh, theologizing, that's what we need to do. You see, when Jesus became incarnate, he actually gave up some of his glory. That's what the Bible tells us. In fact, we read of it in Philippians. In Philippians, we're told that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay, now, now let me just uh, 
let's, let's talk about this for a second, because when we hear the language of empty, what we might think is that Jesus, in his incarnation, ceased to be God. But that's not true. Right? There was a whole church council about that one. Um, Jesus, in his incarnation, remained 100% God, but 100% man. He was hypostatically united together. 100% God, 100% man in one person. He did not give up his divinity, and yet he did give up some of his glory. He gave up some of his glory. The way that the Westminster Confession of Faith calls it, or the larger catechism, says that in his humiliation, you see, when Jesus was incarnate, and he lived under the law, and he went to his death, and he remained in the grave, he was humbled. It's his humiliation. And yet, even in his humiliation, he remained God. But you see, Jesus went through that humiliation because he went through that humiliation. He is actually exalted and returns to the original glory that he had with the Father before his incarnation. So, for instance, that passage in Philippians goes on. It doesn't simply say that Jesus emptied himself, that he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. We actually read this this morning, too. This was our call to worship. Therefore, because of all that Jesus had gone through in his life and death and residing in the grave, because of all that he did, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what Jesus is saying in verse 5. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's talking about his exaltation. He's saying that in his ascension into heaven, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, the place of greatest honor, and he sat on the throne of David, the triumphant one over sin and death. He returns to his rightful place of glory. And we're actually given an image of this in the book of Revelation. See, the author of this gospel, John, he writes in Revelation about the new heavens and the new earth, the, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. Do you remember he says about this city that, that there's no need for sun because the glory of God will shine its light and, and that light is the lamb. And then he says of this lamb who sits on the throne, Jesus, that every creature in heaven and on earth will gather around the throne and call out to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. He's exalted. He's glorified in his triumph over death and hell and the grave. What it means is that he's not just glorified in our hearts right this moment or with our lips. But right now, in the heavenly throne room, Jesus is glorified. He is exalted. He is made much of. And he is not just today, but for all time. He is the one who has triumphed over death and won for us eternal life. He accomplished all that he set out to do. That's what he said. That he has said, accomplished all that he set out to do. And for that reason, the Father has exalted him to the place of glory. He's gloried in his triumph, and there's glory in his death. Now, look, you didn't need to be there on that day 
in April 1997 to know what it's like to glory in something? Right? None of y'all were there, right? No, of course you weren't. <laughs> but you know what it's like to glory in something, to see something amazing and to give honor to it, to be in wonder, to be awe, to be in awestruck. You, you know how I know you know how to do that? Because just a few weeks ago, not just 40,000 people, but the whole country was doing this. See, just a few weeks ago, you, you guys did it. You walked out of your business places of work and, and you stood in parking lots and you drove to other states and, and you went out and you looked up into the sky to bask in the darkness of the eclipse. Right? You, you went out for that hour. I mean, think about the, that hour of darkness. We, we were so excited and anticipating it, right? Like there were social media feeds blaring for months beforehand, right? Where are the best places to go? And make sure you get your glasses, right? So you don't burn your retinas, you know, all those sorts of things. They were, they were telling us that, right? There was so much anticipation and excitement. And when the hour had come, we went out and that's, that's what we did. We, we gloried in what we saw, right? This thing that we had never seen before. Right, kids, you, you were grabbing those glasses, right? Hopefully not away from your sibling while they were looking up. But, but you were grabbing those glasses and you were putting them on and you were going, Mom, look, look at how amazing this is. Look at the shadows, right? You're looking, at, looking through those like boxes, you know, those Boy Scout boxes to see it and to be in awe. And people are gathering around and we're passing glasses around so that we could glory in this once-in-a-lifetime event. Right? And so there were viewing parties, <laughs> and social media feeds were blowing up. And I even had a friend who cried. <laughs> he said he cried. And, and you know, the, the strange thing, I was thinking about this. I was talking to Matthew about it, and I was, starting to, I was wondering, like, it, is this too much? Like, are we just making a bigger deal out of this than we ought? And I realized, no, we weren't. Like, it was right to do this, right? It was right to, to have awe and a sense of wonder in what we were saying. Now, now, maybe the crying went a little bit too far, but, but it was right to look up and gaze and to wonder and to be in awe and to glory in what we had seen. We knew it was right to do it because that hour that we had been waiting for when darkness fell over the land, it, it had come. It, it didn't let us down. In all the social media feeds, I didn't hear one person go, eh, it's okay. Been there, done that. No, you haven't. You've never been there and done that, right? No, none of us lived to see the last time there was a full eclipse across the entirety of the country. No, we gloried in it. That hour that we had been waiting. But, but friends, there's a greater hour that has already come. There's a greater hour that has already come in which Jesus did the very thing that no one else could have ever done and that the world has never seen before or seen since. He went and he took our sins upon himself. He was crucified, dead, and buried, and he rose again that we would have eternal life. And friends, that is why we glory in him. That is why the cross is glorifying that is why we glory in his triumph, because Jesus could do nothing, what no one else could do. And so we glorify him today, and we glorify him every day. From now into eternity, we say with the heavenly host to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might 
forever and ever. Amen. Father, we do thank you that you have given us your son, our Lord Jesus, who accomplished all that it is that you set out for him to do. He kept the law. He obeyed it perfectly. And he went to his death. He went to his death and bore our sins on the tree that we might have life. And for that, we glorify him. We honor you, our God and our King. And we ask that you would help us so that our lives would be lived in honor and glory to you today and tomorrow and all our days. Do this, we pray, for the sake of your name. And we pray in Jesus' name and God's people said together, Amen.